Me llamo Tomás Campitelli. Estoy un trabajador de Barbell Medicina. Medicina de Barbell? Yo no sé. I'm really actually the kind of heart of the operation. It is. I've seen the video of him preparing for the games. I've seen him in the rankings. God, man. Ever since he made the games in 2008, he just doesn't stop talking about it. And he's running around doing 400 meter laps around the neighborhood, doing burpees at every corner. He just, he just, you know, always feels like he has to be sweating every time. He's a real nice guy, uh, but I'll tell you what, he's a bit extra. He is always working out. But just push-ups, burpees, bodyweight squats. Very impressive, very. Uh, Tom, we heard that you went to the CrossFit Games in 2008. True. I was uh, two or three from the bottom. Hey, you never stopped exercising. No, no. I'm, uh, I'm driven to be the best. I think he's playing a long game, so he's trying to preserve that skin for as long as possible. So when he's 80 and ready to show off his body, like his skin is still gonna be fantastic. I mean, I will grant you that I've aged pretty well. I don't tell people how old I am. I will say uh, I'm definitely over 68 years old. <laughs> Question is flexibility tests. What do we think of them? Why are they so common? Uh, so I think if you're looking for data that suggests that any particular uh, performance on a, any flexibility measure is predictive of either performance, re, uh, a reduction in injury prevalence or incidence, reduction in report of pain incidence, or mortality, or you're not going to find it because it doesn't exist. So. Flexibility, any flexibility performance metric that is out there doesn't correlate to anything, but it's easy to test. I have this box from 1972. You put your feet against it and then you push this little slider. There's a number that's still on here because it was made with like, you know, bomb proof paint. Okay. And that's it. So I think that if you are subjected to a flexibility test, that your next best move is to remove yourself from whatever situation puts you into that <laughs> original situation because you, you that's a bad that's a bad thing to be in if those people are providing you with an education right i mean that's a bigger problem don't you think yeah so i think if you ask your professors like hey why are you doing this and they feed you any line other than we're forced to then you have to leave <laughs> i think he's he's getting a little disinhibited here <laughs> no i'm not <laughs> All right, Austin, let me ask you this. Does flexibility predict anything about anything? Other than flexibility? Other than that <laughs> specific test right. at, at that yeah. specific time. It's not useful. Okay, so 
if somebody in a position of power made you do this thing for anything other than a research paper that granted them tenure at their university, would you say that that is a good use of people's time? No. Then why are you disagreeing with me? <laughs> I think that if you are in an institution of higher learning and you're paying for a particular set of uh, skills and a credential and they're, they're showing you that they are not equipped to provide you with that higher set of skills and credential potentially, then you should not continue to pay for that service. Okay. It doesn't mean that they're bad humans. It's just that I couldn't ethically test your flexibility and tell you anything about anything other than, hey man, on this particular day in, in history, <laughs> your sit and reach test was this, and it means nothing, which is exactly what it means. So why is it so prevalent? Again, I don't know other than people in, 19, in the 1970s decided to purchase all these sit and reach box tests because the presidential fitness test was a thing. And now they're prevalent and people, what are they gonna do, test your squat? Here's the other thing, all right, so check this out. Let me, you know, let me, let me make this one step further. If they test your flexibility and then you ask them, well, why don't we just test our squat? And they say, well, squats are bad for your knees, you have to leave. <laughs> Is that sensitive enough for you? <laughs> All, all I'm getting at is that if you have people like that who are teaching you, then they're not equipped to, to provide you with any further knowledge that you need. Uh, let me sorry to add to that. So oh, the, the professor, he's a, he does CrossFit. Oh, sick. And I told him I'm more into like powerlifting. Uh, and he asked me if I do high bar or low bar. So oh, good. Water. Yeah. And he's like, ooh, how do your hips feel? <laughs> Great. Like, oh, okay. And then he's like, oh, did you know that shoulder positioning puts corpse? on uh, your shoulders, like the bar positioning. Put the sword on your shoulders on oh, really. Okay. <laughs> Did you ask him what his best squat was? No. I would've tried to level up. What's your best squat, bro? <laughs> yeah, and he's gonna say 225, and you say, yeah, I did that for a set of 30 for fun because... <laughs> Because Feigenbaum said I could get some hypertrophy for that and I was tired, so I just did that. Yeah, I did your best for a set of 30, so torque this, brah. Also, again, I just want to let you know, my aptly scratched The internet's going to love this. All right. So the question is about the validity of the waist circumference measurement. Uh, as it pertains to, does that actually represent, as it pertains to body fat level versus visceral organ size. Uh, so yes, there's a robust data sets uh, uh, where they measure uh, waist circumference versus body fat, like actually being analyzed and seeing which one is more predictive and waist circumference and BMI are sensitive and specific enough to uh, the diseases associated with obesity. Uh, they're more sensitive and more specific than body fat analysis suggesting that they accurately predict whether someone is carrying too much body fat tissue uh, 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 where you wouldn't need to do a body fat analysis test. Um, so the question would be, do people with larger frame sizes generally have larger visceral organ tissue? That's not necessarily the case. Yeah. 
and 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 further do people who have higher bmis and higher waist circumferences uh typically uh, have higher amounts of visceral adipose tissue and the answer is yes they do so yeah it's been a study and the answer is if you have uh, elevated BMI with an elevated waist circumference that's above that cutoff level. <laughs> what, what just happened? I had to pull my zip my fly up. Oh, nice. <laughs> so if you have an elevated, if you have an elevated BMI and elevated waist circumference, then we can be reasonably sure that that's due to too much uh, abdominal uh, adipose tissue in your uh, in your abdomen. Yeah, that's which is why like the obese, uh, American Board of Obesity Medicine uh, recommends against testing for body fat. Because they're like, it doesn't add anything to your, your clinical picture. It's just extra resources that are being expended. So the question would be, uh, should you rotate your hand at the top of a row to prevent injury? The answer to that is no. And the further answer is, it'd be very difficult to describe a particular biomechanical situation that predisposes someone to over injury under a barbell or under a dumbbell even. And further, it's even more difficult to describe what even an injury actually is. So in fact, the current definitions being used is from a 2014 study by Timka and Sports Medicine Journal. It would suggest that any uh, uh, thing that produces a, a morphology change, so uh, like a, def- a, defor- a, def- a deformity, limb, like, yeah. an open, like an open fracture. Like you have an open fracture or like an obvious muscle rupture or that reduces uh, function significantly is an injury. Although you could say that a severe case of delayed onset muscle soreness would technically therefore be an injury, but in, in any event, that's how they define it. So does rotating the dumbbell at the top pre- prevent that from happening? Not to any, not not to anything that's ever been shown in the literature. And then further, so let's think about a squat. If your knees cave in when you squat, right? Or if your back rounds, or if your elbows shoot up, or if your head cranes up, these are all compromises in the technical efficiency of the movement. All right, which may ultimately compromise performance on lift. But do they predispose you to developing injury? Not that's been shown reliably. And based on Austin's pain lecture, you know that pain is super complex. So we wouldn't necessarily expect folks to be in more or less pain based on how they exercised, unless their acute on chronic workload management was inappropriate, meaning they did too much too soon, for instance. Yeah. So yeah, I think the injury risk piece comes way overwhelmingly more down to load management than it does to the way you are moving. Yeah. Movement in general is safe, and I think trying to dichotomize things into correct or incorrect movement is wrong. I think it's a sales tactic. Yeah, so this is my method of movement that is correct, and all these other methods of movement are incorrect. Pay me. Uh, Because if you move those other ways, you will snap your shit up. (laughs) Right? I think that's wrong, and I think it's harmful. you know, we're resilient, robust, adaptable organisms. We can move in a variety of ways. We can adapt a variety of postures. And uh, I, I think that suggesting that failure to rotate your arm during a dumbbell row will cause injury is ridiculous. You'll impinge your shoulder. Yes, yes. Which is not even a thing. Which is a whole separate topic. Not a thing. Well, kind of, but not really. So. Like a VMO. Okay. <laughs> like there are fibers that are oblique, but it's not like its own separate entity. Yeah, sure.
Right. No. Okay. So the question is: Are there any t- uh, studies, screening tests, medical nuggets of info that you would give to anyone any to improve uh, their health and performance? Well, to catch diagnosis it, yeah. of sleep apnea. Yeah, it yeah. Sounds yeah. like right. Any, uh, Anything. Oh. Yes. So widely based population based screening tests that are have been shown to be efficacious for improving health outcomes. <laughs> it's a big topic. Yeah, well, I think that the USPTF, so US Preventative USPSTF. Yeah, US Preventative Services Task Force there you go. Nailed it. comes up <laughs> with these recommendations that are age appropriate screenings based on your demographic and risk factor. And I think that's the best population based evidence stuff that we have to date. So depending on your background, your medical history, et cetera, you would be subjected to certain tests on a regular basis that your doctor would do to fulfill their criteria in order to be paid. So if you were to go see them, they would have to do so. So there's that. I don't have any, I don't have any problem recommending that everybody should take the stop bank questionnaire I don't have any problem doing that. I have problems saying that everybody should get a CBC and a CMP and you know other certain vitamin levels because that's on a case by case basis. And I think that if you are just drawing drawing labs to try to find a problem, you may in fact find a problem that doesn't necessarily need to be treated. So the USP, uh, USPSTF there you go. has the current guidelines that I would follow at this time. Do you have a different answer? No, I, I mean, I think that's where I would go on this stuff too. I think we're probably going to include the stop bang in the booklets for people next time, probably so they can take it while they're here. Yeah, and we're going to start and selling a barbell medicine sleep apnea machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that, you know, if you, if you go to the USPSTF website, you'll probably not find something that is going to radically change your life on the same level that getting diagnosed and treated for sleep apnea will, unless you have untreated or undiagnosed depression, which is recommended to be screened for, untreated or undiagnosed alcohol or drug use, which is recommended to be screened for, undiagnosed or untreated HIV infection, which is recommended to be screened for. Those are probably the big ones. Yeah. At your a at what I'm guessing is your age, just looking at you. He's actually 75. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which you don't that know. That changes my answer a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right, right. right. Don't they recommend for testosterone screenings? That's going to be a no. No. For don't. anyone. I see. At any age. And vitamin D? Nope. Oh, weird. Hmm. Hmm. So the question uh, is from a physician in our audience who... She's a doctor. Yes. So the question has to do with the application of the biopsychosocial model to health and disease, particularly pertaining to weight loss, success, or failure. Uh, In other words, people who have failed multiple times and having psychological trauma or stigma and things like that associated with their prior weight management issues and interaction with healthcare providers. How do we approach that? Yeah, I mean, I I can only tell you how I approach it. And for me, it's not necessarily, so I would go back to your statement that the calories in, calories out doesn't work. I, I agree that it doesn't work from a population level recommendation standpoint. No more than the CrossFit recommendation of get off the carbs off the couch is gonna work at a population level. Uh, I think that all it's showing us is that we need a more specific recommendation and we need to have a set of guidelines that's got that's an algorithm effectively that's pushing us through how we recommend, how we go about managing obesity, right? And I think that exists 
the American, the endocrinology, uh, American the Ace Obesity Guideline are quite good. Yeah, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, their, their obesity guidelines are top notch. ABOM, American Board of Obesity Medicine, their obesity management recommendations are also top notch. What you find is that they always start with lifestyle, right? It's just like this, <laughs> this little thing, lifestyle medicine. It's like, cool. So how are you counseling people? And how are you, and what are you recommending? So I think that the recommendations need to be specific. And I think that the only way that you can make specific recommendations that aren't harmful to the patient population is by getting a good history, right? So, so you have to ask their, their diet history. Well, what have you done in the past? What has worked? What has not worked? And why did you think it stopped working? Whatever was working before. And I think that being sensitive, I mean, it has, that's the same thing you do with any other disease, right? Um, and then you just move on down the algorithm. So if this person happens to have a BMI greater than 35, then you have to approach right there at that point. Hey, I think at some point we need to have you see one of our surgeons because you would be a good candidate potentially for surgery. You may require medications and you want to destigmatize that right off the bat. I think the bigger problem isn't necessarily offending or um, making the patient uh, upset because I, I, I don't I, I don't think that hasn't been my experience anyway. The bigger problem is not treating them to the level which they need to be treated. I mean, how many how many patients do you know with between you and your colleagues who are on uh, uh, obesity uh, uh, anti obesity medications? I do a lot of obesity. You do you do so you do a lot. Yes. What about your colleagues? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so you're the you're the person. Yeah, so so that's a problem. Not necessarily that you're busy, but that they don't. They're so outside. Of, you know, their primary care as well. I assume, right? We'd want them to be able to do this, or at least have more resources like you who are doing this. Um, that's a problem. Uh, further, being able to refer to surgery for surgery, that needs to be destigmatized. So, I think starting the conversations early needs to happen, and I think that getting a good history on the patient as far as what has worked for them in the past and what is and why it stopped working is important because you need to point out like, hey, you think that keto is the only way that you lose weight, except for you've tried it six times yeah. and it still hasn't worked, you know, it still hasn't worked for you. And it's not that you're trying to offend them, you're just trying to point out the obvious. And I think that's the same thing you do for people who end up having diabetes and high blood pressure as well. You're like, you know, what we've been doing in the past hasn't worked. so. Yeah, I think I take a similar approach to this that I probably take with a lot of the, the pain stuff that I deal with in terms of first uh, kind of figuring out where the patient is, what's their understanding of what's going on, how they ended up here, what's going on, and then uh, kind of the stages of change kind of thing, figuring out how likely are they to dive into this. And if they've tried multiple times before, that's a good sign. It means they're willing to try, right? But then why did it stop or what are the current ongoing barriers, right? What have you been told before? about your obesity? What, what have other physicians told you about this? And that's oftentimes where you might see people start to open up and get some get some tears flowing if they've been told bad things or if they felt, you know, shame or, you know, negative connotations with, you know, because the majority of these people avoid doctors. They don't like going to the doctor because they know that when they go to the doctor, they have to step on the scale when they go in the office. That's not cool, right? Because when you avoid getting healthcare, getting help for your problems, what happens? It comes back to bite you later on, right? With stuff that's been untreated or undiagnosed. Or because you didn't go to your doctor, because you're afraid to step on the scale, 
you missed your age-appropriate cancer screenings, and then you get diagnosed with things like cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer at a higher rate because you didn't get things like mammograms and colonoscopies done and stuff like that. That's also been shown among patients who tend to avoid going to healthcare providers for these sorts of reasons. So totally agree that I think destigmatizing is probably the way to go and the way to do that is to establish rapport and the way to establish rapport is just talking to people more. And that's, I mean, when I have a patient particular, I do more, I do plenty of obesity stuff and do, do the obesity medicine piece, but uh, a lot of pain stuff as well. And it's just lots of talking. Um, and once you can establish that rapport, you can identify barriers. Once you identify barriers, you can start to take those down. Because if you identify a barrier, like for example, I. The patient says, I, under no circumstances, can adhere to a fat-restricted diet, for example, right? Then you've identified a potential avenue where you can steer them down, and maybe we need to manipulate their energy intake from a carbohydrate standpoint instead. Um, so identifying barriers is a big piece, and people will be more willing to divulge these barriers or their prior experiences once you've kind of made that rapport and validated their experience. So... I feel like she knows that. She knows all these things. She knows all these things. Hey, li <laughs> hey listen. <laughs> What's your big issue in primary care? What's your biggest problem? What's the biggest barrier for you in treating yeah. the people you need to treat? Uh, yeah, let's turn the tables. <laughs> now, the focus is on you. I guess I'm concerned with um, the idea of like, okay, you see a BMI at 35, you see a waste of time. 41 and you say, lose weight, yep. without first like knowing has your your client or your patient experienced trauma because of this. Sure. Oh, well, yeah. The weight that they carry. I think it's really important to ask people. Sure. What's your experience been before? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Although everyone in this room should know that the ultimate endpoint is for them to lose weight. But you know, as soon as you see the measurements when they walk in the room, you don't just yell at them. <laughs> lose weight. And they're like, yeah, dude, I know. Well, like if you were to get some weight lifting for six months first before they're willing to talk to you about yeah. it, there's no harm in, this, in that delay. No, actually, and so I did this. I did this thing. Uh, what was it? The evidence-based behavioral practice uh, lecture. lecture. Yeah, in uh, St. Vincent's College, and a big part of that was about using weightlifting as an adjunctive therapy towards. Uh, uh, dietary modification for obesity. And the idea was I can get a bigger buy-in for dietary training. manipulation if I can get somebody training and get them keyed up on that. Because then- Caring about their lifting outcomes. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So 100%, yeah, getting somebody to care, period, about their health is you know, sometimes difficult. And I think <laughs> if you can get them into training, that that is a good, good way to do it. But how many how many uh, uh, patients do you think, if you had to guess on a percentage basis, are on uh, that you're you're managing for obesity? How many patients? Yeah, percentage wise, of your total total panel are you managing for obesity? Ten percent. Okay. Well, that's low. Hey, do you want a, You want a job? <laughs> <laughs> cool. We have. Uh, <laughs> We've got some availability. So. <laughs> um, so I have to ask you a obligatory question about chicks, I guess. Oh, chicks um, does. Yeah, so, I mean, there's like the obvious, like, they correct you with normal, right? And um, I guess there's kind of two questions. One being, um, I'm curious about your thoughts with this kind of athletic training sensitivity structure, which I think is like sort of revolutionary and interesting. Um, 
Yeah. I got one thing right in my whole life. Uh, like, what do you foresee? I find it interesting to think about um, kind of where women in sports go. Like, women in sports is so kind of historically recent that it mm-hmm. seems like we haven't really explored right. like possibilities there. More um, interesting. Yeah. Than so dude sports. Right. So that's interesting. <laughs> that's exactly true. So, like, imagine that. <laughs> and then the other piece of it being, um, like, how to make this less intimidating or whatever for women. And I, to me, there's two parts of that. There's, like, the, on the one hand, there's this sort of, like, traditional masculinity that feels inaccessible or, you know, sure. toxic. Um, like pretty spirit. <laughs> and then there's the other side of it that is, you know, being like claimed by women and it's awesome, but it's like pink and glittery and like hyper sexualized often. Oh, yeah. Fits though. Right. Break that back, sell the protein powder. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I work hard so my daughter doesn't have to sell protein powder. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do we, like, not plan so the question is, where do women's sports go in the future? Where do we see them going in the future? And number two, making this whole scene more accessible to women, I suppose. All right. So where do women's sports go in the future? I think that uh, women's sports explode, continue to explode with more. Basically, every time that there's a sport in general, that there's going to be a women's division. And that the gap originally, here's how the natural history of any women's and uh, men's sport goes. It's gonna be a large gap initially between performance and then it's gonna narrow and it's gonna maintain. So originally they thought in the 80s that the women were gonna surpass the men because they found steroids. Uh, but turns out the guys found steroids too. And <laughs> the gap stayed the same. Yeah, they were like, we predict by 2020 that the women's, you know, 100, 100 meters, meter yeah, 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 it's yeah, going to yeah. be faster than the men's. No, they just found steroids for a few years and then the guys <laughs> found more steroids. <laughs> yeah, and their voices didn't change, so it's fine. Um, yeah, so I think that's how it's going to go. You're going to, every time that a new sport emerges or becomes more popular, initially the guys are going to be the ones to, uh, uh, you know, excel and then women are going to come in and say, hey, we do this too. And then there's going to be a large gap and it's going to narrow. I think actually the only world record now held by women is in the long distance ski downhill jump. So women actually holds that just absolute outright, which is kind of dope. So it'll be interesting to know if and when a sport comes along where the woman actually holds the upper hand. So it'll be something and it'll be really cool when that happens. Yeah. I think that as it becomes more widely accepted where women participate in sports via the social media and mainstream media that you're going to get more women involved. I mean, this is what's happened with CrossFit. This is probably one of the best. It's like the both the best and the worst of CrossFit at the same time. Like the best thing is they've Mm -hmm. highlighted women doing these things. And so more women get involved. On the other hand, they've highlighted them in very interesting ways (laughs) that I don't necessarily have a problem with, but at the same time does lead to some bigger questions. Anyway, let's leave that alone. I don't want to get hated on the internet for this. So, um, yeah, I'm pumped. I'm pumped. I'm really excited to see how women do. How to get more, uh, more, more women involved in training is going to involve more women getting involved in training. So, you are a social change agent. You have a wide uh, group of women who you interact with on a regular basis and they all need to be training. How do you get them to train? I think that there needs to be workshops and initially it probably starts out as women only sort of training things. 
because that cuts this intimidation factor. But I don't support that widely. I think that suggesting that women and men are different and need their own training thing ultimately just re- results in this, you know, segregated training experience. And it shouldn't be like that. That being said, guys need to do better at this too. Look, we're screwing this up for women, which ultimately screws it up for us because by limiting half the population from engaging in something we think is really important, that limits our resources to train. So, you know, we need to be more respectful of women. We need to uh, allow for them to engage in training without, you know, asking them if they need a spot and standing too close to them or, you know, <laughs> offering them technique advice and, you know, breathing heavily within in their ears. Like we need to <laughs> through your mouth. Yeah. Through your mouth. Yeah. So I am hopeful that as our society becomes more educated and more aware of the inequality between males and females, that uh, there are more guys who are in a position to help women get to the same level do that so i would love nothing more than to have as many female barbell medicine coaches as male that would be a win for us the problem is that in the strength in this field women get to a certain level as far as coaching goes and then they 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 come to a fork in the road and they say well i can either improve my skill set and become an expert in my field and no one will care or I can do the Fitzbo stuff and put discount code in bio. Do that. And I'm waiting for somebody to choose the first option, right? Present company excluded. So we'll see how we'll see when that happens. And that doesn't mean that I don't think there's anybody that's that there's nobody out there doing great things. I just think that the majority of the time that's that's how this goes. And I would rather see that there's thousands of women out there who are subject matter experts in this field and they're, you know, getting their piece of the pie. I want that. But right now there's a handful and everybody else is uh, telling you that you can get 10% off if you use my name at this checkout. And that's unfortunate. So, yeah. Question about warm ups, how they change it, how they change for mile reps, heavy singles, and sets of eight. Awesome. Uh, so I guess I can just give an example of how I might warm up for a heavy single. Yep. So, yeah, right. <laughs> so say I'm going to squat a single at 600 or something. I'll squat the empty bar for anywhere from, let's say, three to eight sets of two to five reps. I know that sounds weird, but I just, I don't do the same thing every single time. So I've done eight doubles before. I posted that as a video and like I got so many DMs like 48 hours later, like, can you repost that warm up video? It's like just eight doubles with the empty bar. <laughs> yeah. I my first Instagram big deal. My first Instagram post that got over a thousand likes was my uh, my video where I did an EMOM for ten minutes of five reps yeah. of the empty bar. On the minute, every minute, yeah, for ten minutes. So a few sets with the empty bar. I don't do. People were stoked. Ten minutes. <laughs> I don't do ten minutes of warm up, but you know, if I'm doing doubles, I might do one every ten or fifteen or twenty seconds or something like that. Sets of five, two or three sets of five with the empty bar, and then go one thirty-five, two twenty-five, three fifteen for like plate jumps, fairly aggressive. Plate How many jumps. reps are you doing on the way up? So I'll do one thirty-five for five, two twenty-five for four, three fifteen for a double, four or five for a single, four ninety-five for a single. 
550 for a single and 600 for a single, something yeah. like that. So less warm up than you might think. The way that I would tell people to warm up for a single though, so so you have a single at eight, let's say, and then you're doing fives after that. I would have you do fives all the way up to uh, what I would call the single before the single. It's like a warm up single. So for Austin, if he wasn't squatting so heavy, he would be doing fives all the way up through 495. Yeah, I'm not doing that. And then five, <laughs> well, I know, but then 550 for a single, then 600 for a single. So that's how that would change as far as my actual prescription for somebody who doesn't already know how to warm up and how they need to warm up. You know, if we were looking for absolute prescriptions, it'd be do fives all the way up, do one like pre-single, and then your planned single. That would be the idea. And the pre-single is trying to tell you, am I okay to go up this week? Because the assumption is that you're stronger this week. Always, no matter how you feel. The assumption is that I'm stronger. I'm stronger, I'm better this week until proven otherwise. So the pre-single needs to tell you that. So for instance, Leah this next week is gonna try to deadlift 170. That's her best pull in training she's ever done. Okay, so the single prior to that needs to be heavy enough to tell us, is this a smart jump? If it's less than 160 kilos, it cannot possibly tell us that. Okay, cannot possibly tell us that. So somewhere in that five to eight percent range is what it needs to be, right? So five, you know, five five percent of six hundred is you know thirty, you know, ten five to ten percent, five to eight percent rather. We're talking you know sure. over 40, 50 five, pounds, five sixty, yeah, something like that. Close, it's close. But how I would have that do if you were doing a single at eight and then five sets of five, then the idea is you do fives all the way up to a single, a pre-single to gauge your top single. If you're gonna warm up for eights, do eights all the way up. If you're gonna warm up for a mile rep, I probably wouldn't. Because it's the third exercise of the day, you're already warm, you're gonna pick a set, or pick a weight that you think is the appropriate intensity, and you're gonna do it till you almost fail, till it's at eight. So basically, let's, so again, let's go, go back to that 20, you have 20 minutes to train, what do you do? Yeah, I would put 225 on the bar on the squat, because I know I don't need much warm up for that, I could literally just, I'm gonna put my shoes on, I'm gonna go squat 225, and I'm gonna squat it for you know 40 reps <laughs> or so until I get tired and see Jesus. And that's gonna be my activation set. So that's the idea. So for a mile rep, I probably wouldn't warm up uh, unless, unless I was really scared to do something, in which case I would do a range of motion with that particular exercise. But I would pick whatever intensity I think is appropriate, and then I would do that first set until I got to RP8. So I thought I had two reps left in the tank, which is near failure, and that would be my activation set. Does that make sense? Yeah. So whatever the rep prescription is, prescription is, do that all the way up, unless it's singles. If it's singles, you need to do a single before the single to tell you should you go up, and it has to be close enough to your planned increase to give you enough information. Austin knows if 550 moves like pretty slow, he can't jump to 600. But if it moves fine, he's like, I have no reason to believe that 600 will not go today. If it was 500, he wouldn't know. It's too far away. You agree? With most things. <sighs> Bro. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> The question is, tips to stay consistent with nutrition and training whilst traveling. All right, so the first trick is, where do you find, how do you find places to train whilst traveling? Uh, so 
the easiest thing to do is to search powerlifting gym, whatever town you're going to. That's step one. If nothing comes up there, you come up goose egg, then you got to search CrossFit gym, whatever gym or whatever town you're going to, and then look for open gym hours. That way you at least find a place to train because most CrossFit gyms have what you need. So then you start looking around on the Google to say, do they have iron plates? Do they have squat? You know, do they have actual racks or is it all rigs? Rigs, which is fine. You can still, you can make do, but those are all much better than going to a commercial gym. But in general, especially in America, there are powerlifting gyms all over the place. And then you find out their Instagram, you stalk a little bit, you see, oh, what's the best place to go? That's actually what we did when we were in Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. Gym tourism. It's great. Yeah. Food wise, it's tougher. Food wise, it's tougher. Uh, so if you're going to go to a place for an extended stay and you really want to be tighter in your nutrition, my advice would be to find a meal prep service and they will just deliver all your food to you. You don't have to worry about it. If you're only going to be places for a few days, I would make see if there's Whole Foods nearby. You could literally do all this stuff Whole Foods would be totally fine. And if failing that, my general go-to is most meals should be low carb, low fat, double protein, high protein at the beginning and middle of the day, meaning breakfast, lunch, snacks, high protein, low fat, low carb. And then at the end of the day, you have more freedom to do your thing. Because let's say you're traveling, you're going out, so you're gonna have a drink or two, you're gonna have maybe dessert, whatever, you've left room for that. Ultimately, so the calories equal what you need to get to. That's my general recommendation. But if I was gonna go somewhere for two weeks, I'm gonna get a meal prep service to help me out. Yeah. You have anything to add? I have something to add. Oh, yes. I have a child with you. Uh, yes. <laughs> one, of, one of the things I noticed on my first trip with Fighting Mom is that he is essentially maniacally focused on making sure that he trains. Like, his his main tip and trick is probably the fact that, like, he just, he will not miss training. Like, if we're in lots of places, he's like, okay, where are we going to go and work out? You know? Uh, and yeah. it's just like, what he does. Uh, and that is that is something, aside from, aside from whatever, like, Genetic gifts uh, those two have. The fact is, they like that is that is a big priority for them wherever they go. Like it's what they do, uh, and so I think I think that is also like that's not there's no secret so much as it is, and I do not share that. Okay? <laughs> it sounds I, like I, I could look at a barbell. <laughs> sessions have you missed in the past decade? Three. It's one week. I went to Vegas for the first time. <laughs> oh yeah, you were real sick after that. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> mine was my honeymoon. Just seven days. So you, missed, you missed four training sessions. Just during that week. Yeah, I missed three. And then I did a meet. <laughs> and then I came home, came home from my honeymoon, two weeks later did a meet and still performed fine. He's still fine. Because in where was the guy who asked? Oh, I guess he had to go here. In a short period of time, you don't detrain that much. Oh, so, that guy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, just have not missed training. So, finding a way to train is super important. I am not as rigid about nutrition. That's that's probably another difference here. So, I would not personally. That's why I'm more handsome. 
Sure. Yeah. Although you're married, so <laughs> that helps. So I don't do the meal prep thing, but I do similar approach to selecting what I put in my mouth. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Next question. <laughs> All right. So the question is, yo, we're working in the equestrian field. How do we recommend strength and conditioning? Well, so if you at, if you said like so, how many women, how many how many girls do you deal with at a time? Yeah, up to twenty. So if you said, hey, before you come to me, I want you to do this strength this strength training program. What sort of buy-in do you think you'd have there? I mean, have you tried? No. Yeah. So, so the first thing I would do is just say, look, look, you're gonna, you're about to come here in 12 weeks. What I'd like you to do for three months before you come here to get, get yourself prepared to deal with this 1,200 pound animal, and the other rigors of the equestrian life. Okay. Uh, is the strength training program, and it's squat, bench, deadlift, press. They're gonna do some chin ups, or whatever. Even if it's just twice a week. And the first thing you do is just assess, well, how many people are doing it. If you recommend it and 75% of the folks who come in through your uh, program say that they did it, that's a win. You don't have to do anything. You already won. Now, if you recommend it and 0% do it, then you have to do a post test before they leave you and say, well, why didn't you do it? And you, then that's going to well, tell you, that's going to tell you your barriers. Identify the barrier. Like yeah. You were saying earlier. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at is that all you got to do is try first and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, then you have to figure out why. But I would just try first because I bet you're in a position of power. They're all, they all have to pay a bunch of money, right? I assume you're not cheap, Reed. <laughs> They're dealing with horses, which seems fairly affluent, Reed. <laughs> so I think you're in a position of power where you can say, hey, look, before you come here, you need to do the strength training program. It's very, it's going to be very helpful to you and your riding career and to your success within my program. I would recommend that you do it. Here's what you need to know. And all you're saying is, I want you to squat, bench, deadlift, press. Here's the program. You're going to do two lifts per day, twice per week. One day is squat and press, right? The other day is deadlift and bench press. You're going to try to add weight every week, do this many reps, this many sets. And then when they come in, you say, how many of you did this? And you find out. You find out what your initial buy-in buy -in is from literally doing nothing other than saying, you should, you should strength train, here's how you do it. And I think if it's over 50%, you've won. And then you just gotta figure out why didn't the other percentage of folks do it? And then you, that can kind of tailor how you're recommending the things. But if you're asking me how I would recommend for young women who have never trained before to train before they come to you, if you're assuming a fairly low buy-in overall, I would say they're gonna train twice per week, one day a squat and press. Why? Because it shares the same rack height, they don't have to do anything. The other day is deadlift and bench press. And that's it, that's the only resistance training that you're gonna actually make them do. If you could get them to do more stuff, that's great. But we're talking about going from no training to some training, right? Who knows? Maybe they'll like it after the three months and they'll say, well, what else can I do, Reed? And you're like, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Horse season is over. Now it's gain season, right? Like so. <laughs> is there a horse season? 
Ask him. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he said that there was a season. It's always so. It's always. <laughs> so, but but that's actually what I would do. Yeah. That that's that's the thing I would do. And and literally, you couldn't go wrong with making up any type of program <laughs> that you wanted to, unless it in, included too many things, to where it decreased the compliance. Which would only be able to be evaluated retrospectively after you administered it. Okay, so I would keep it two exercises, two days per week, and just see what your initial buy-in is. If they like you, or if they think that you're legit and it, you know, is fairly selective process to get into your program, I think you're going to have a high level buy-in, which would be great. Right, and you can use it later on for, say, like promotional type stuff of like this is how people who succeed in this program prepare for this sort of thing. This is what this requires. Right. right. If you want to succeed at this, this is how you do it. And if people are incentivized or motivated to go do your thing, you know, people who are highly motivated are going to do all kinds of crazy shit, like train four times a week for a decade and never miss a session. Yeah. Or, or if you're, you're going to do that kind of thing. Or if you do curling for Russia, you take (laughs) anabolic steroids. Who knows? Yeah. If yeah. they're motivated, you know, yeah, I'll give it a shot. So that's that's what I would do and get some data first. And then if you ever, if you need help with any of that stuff, you just email us. All right. Tips and tricks for gaining weight. Uh, excuse me. I'll, I'll just bow out of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you gained a bunch of weight. Yeah, I started training. I was about 158 pounds when I started training. This dude was tiny. So I've gained 40 four pounds, I guess, here today, yeah. Yeah, I gained. It was slow, but yeah. I'll get 50 to this point, and now I'm just like, I can't. How tall are you? Uh, 6'1". 6'1". And yeah. what do you weigh? 220. I mean, you're not, it's not like you yeah. need to gain a bunch of weight. Yeah, just I mean, you're getting there. Yeah. Use a blender. <laughs> well, so, so I mean, the obvious suggestions are to use high-calorie, more nutrient-dense foods, right? And then that are less palatable or not less palatable, sorry, less satiating. So have higher sugar content, higher fat content, higher salt content, because they're not gonna fill you up. That's the idea. If you're talking about doing chicken breasts and rice, whatever, because all the bodybuilders say that they do that eight times a day, they're lying. They're lying. And if they're not lying, that represents a psychological abnormality that you don't have. Because if you had that, you would have already been, uh, you know, IFBB pro, okay? so. I think using, um, you can either use less satiating foods, more calorie dense foods, right? Or find ways to increase your calorie intake that don't necessarily fill you up. So peanut butter is the, the cure all here. Seriously. Or doing liquid foods, right? So whey protein, oatmeal, ice cream, peanut butter, blend, slug it down, try to avoid the toilet for the next 90 minutes. <laughs> Well, that's the thing is, right, so your problem that you're experiencing is that you're getting full too quick, too soon to consume enough calories to gain weight. What are the things that go into satiation that we talked about yesterday? Protein, fiber, water. So less water, less fiber, less protein in the food, makes it less filling, means you eat more of it, means you gain weight, right? And then also remember the food matrix stuff that I talked about in terms of the physiologic effects that it has on your body uh, as a result of the way that it's delivered, chewing, liquid, all these other kind of things, right? And so taking something with lower fiber, lower water, lower protein, and blending it into a liquid form that requires no chewing and you can swallow it very quickly means that, hey, it's not gonna fill you up particularly, you know, that much. It could be some wine. 
Yes. Yes. I mean, so I probably wouldn't. Uh, I mean, if I was making a protein shake that was designed to gain weight, it'd be one scoop of protein or, or maybe a, a two thirds of a scoop of protein. It would be two cups of oats and then it would be two or three servings of ice cream plus a serving of peanut butter. But it's not going to be two scoops of protein. Right. You don't need that. You're getting protein from those other sources as well, plus a bunch of calories. Luckily, it's empty. Yeah, you've probably already gotten enough protein in from the rest of your intake for the entire rest of the day. And this is just extra stuff. Yep. You could also you could also make an argument for increased meal frequency, even though you know that there's a refractory period for muscle protein synthesis. That's not necessarily your concern. Your primary concern is getting enough calories in through the day. Right. Your secondary concern is, well, how to most optimally spread that. But if you're not meeting the first criteria, you don't get to pass go and collect $200 and move to the second thing. You got to get the first one first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I do that very frequently. Violate this dietary refractory period thing. And I have dinner at whatever, 7 p.m. Yeah. or something like that. And then I'm going to go to bed a few hours later and I fit two more feedings in that period of time. Yeah. It's probably so fun. that I don't lose weight by the morning because that's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, I probably wouldn't recommend pouring olive oil on pizza, for instance, though. <laughs> yeah, or just like mainlining palmitic acid. Sure. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, the question is pregnant women, what to do? What to do? <laughs> so right now, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology is the resource to go to for uh, basically any question that you would ever have on pregnant women and what to do about it as far as what's the next move, what are your precautions, et cetera, et cetera. On exercise, they have been fairly liberal in that they've modified their stance over the years. And now currently it says, hey, whatever you were doing before, you should do it. If you want to start exercising, go ahead and do it. The problem is they say, eh, it probably shouldn't be too intense. And then they, they don't give any specific recommendations other than it probably shouldn't be too hard. I'm paraphrasing. Progress from bed rest. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. But that's where they started, right? So they started from the bottom, now they're here, and it's great. <laughs> the problem, the 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 issue is uh, because they're non-specific in their recommendations, that leaves this large gray zone, like gray area. Like, well, can you recommend that women regularly engage in resistance training even though they're pregnant? And you know, uh, you could say that, but you'd be wrong because not every woman woman is safe to engage in resistance training whilst pregnant. And if you said, well, no, they can't, you'd also be wrong because you'd be missing a huge swath of the pregnant population who is safe to engage in resistance training that is new to them at high intensities during pregnancy. So what should you do? I wouldn't do anything. I would say you should have this conversation with your doctor who would hopefully be able to have an educated discussion about the risks and benefits of resistance training or training in general while being pregnant, even if it's new to the person. The, here's the main thing you need to take away. During pregnancy, this isn't the time where you're expecting people to hit PRs or where strength is the most important thing because it's not. You're already making compromises in your training resources 
right? Why? Because you have another growing thing inside of you that is stealing your gains. Okay? It's a tumor. So somebody was like, yeah, somebody was like, should I take creatine while I'm pregnant? And I'm like, well, the risk of taking creatine while being pregnant has actually been studied and it's fairly low. However, why are you taking it in the first place? If it's to improve performance, the question is, well, you're pregnant, okay? Like your belt no longer fits. You have to modify your technique maybe on your squat and your deadlift. And we're just trying to train because you like it and because there are health benefits, not because you're trying to go to a meet and, you know, set a new PR on your 1RM, although that may in fact happen. Uh, Mike Grillo, his yeah. wife. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. What'd she pull? 365 for a triple or something, right? Like a couple days before delivery. Yeah. <laughs> the, go- the thing is she like sumo deadlifted the baby out. Like it just like, <laughs> right. So anyway, I, I think the, the takeaway is we don't know what the risks actually are other than we don't think that they're that high. Here's why we don't think they're that high. There are not numerous piles of case reports suggesting that women engaging in high intensity training of any sort with CrossFit being as popular as it is, we expect this to be fairly high. Yeah. Resistance training being becoming more popular, we expect we would, there would have been a case high. series by now. There would have been a case series of women just dropping dead or miscarrying or having problems secondary to training whilst pregnant that just hasn't developed. That being said, the risk is probably non-zero and it needs to be discussed with their physician. My recommendation, if I was in charge of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, would be to, well, if, if I were in charge, All right. which I'm not, but if I were, I would recommend to initiate strength training unless there was a contraindication to doing so. So if there's no contraindication, sure. yeah, if there's no contraindication to doing so, I think you should train in a way that produces, that comports with progressive overload and allows you to get stronger demonstrably. Allows you to uh, engage in a recreational pursuit of barbell sports performance. Do you have any anything no. to add to that? I think it's the same answer we've we our rehearsed answer for this question. Oh yeah, sorry, I blacked out. What happened? <laughs> there was a glitch in the in the matrix. 